Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 65th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is the truth about habits. I'm joined by BJ Fogg. He is the author of Tiny Habits, The Small Changes That Change Everything. The publisher is Mariner Books, which is an imprint of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. BJ founded the Behavioral Design Lab at Stanford University. He teaches industry innovators and created the Tiny Habits Academy to help people around the world. He lives in Northern California and Maui. Welcome to the show, BJ. Dan, thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. So give us a brief overview of the book, if you don't mind. Boom. Tiny Habits came out about a year and a half ago, translated in about 25 languages coming up. It is. Oh, my gosh. It brings together a system. So I, I think the, the, if, if, if there's any word to say here, it's there's a system behind human behavior. There's a system for habits. And what I share for the first time ever in Tiny Habits is what comprise the system. You've got models and methods that are new models and methods. This is not a rehash of the old stuff. And these models and methods work together and you can systematically analyze behavior or systematically design behavior, including habits. And that is, that's a big deal to me because I love systems and I love um, not just guessing, but deriving answers and insights from, uh, from a position of, um, well, I'll say it again. It's a system. And that is what it brings together for the first time. I call the system behavior design. And one of the methods inside of behavior design is the tiny habits method. Okay. Well, I probably love this book for several reasons, probably even starting with my household growing up. My father was an engineer, uh, eventually in charge of 3M printed post-it notes. Uh, so I, I learned to love systems as well, but my mom was a designer, an interior designer for a while. 
uh, and still retain that interest. This is a, just for the listeners, this is a beautifully designed book uh, using two colors with some really accessible, uh, fun, but also informative uh, charts and processes that are illustrated. So uh, it's really a delight of a book. And I just want listeners to pick up a copy and join those who are already enjoying it. So I want to get a lot into the, the process as we move through it, because I think that will help inform listeners. But I want to go back to kind of the kind of the underlying um, thesis almost, as it were, in terms of how the brain works, how we you know move through things. You really emphasize that this is a process, not a set of prescriptions, but you also talk about how important emotion is. So I want to start with several statements you make and give you the chance to kind of elaborate on them where, as it were, and we'll move one by one. The first thing you say that I think gets my attention is you say, we start from emotion then find the rationale to act. What is the significance of that statement for you and your system? Yeah, I'm sure I'm not the first to point that out. But, and you know, Dan, 10 years ago, if uh, somebody had told me, hey, you're going to be talking a lot about emotions in the future, I'd like, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) But as it turns out, emotions, that's what create habits. It's not repetition. It's the emotions we feel. And I've really... To be frank, Dan, I was really slow to pick up on that. I was like, uh, but once I saw that clearly, I went full on with the um, embracing how important emotions are and the role. They play lots of roles in our lives, but one of them is to reinforce behavior. In other words, make behavior more automatic. In other words, turn what would be a, a decision or a deliberate act into a habit. And these, this um, right now, I don't want to date this podcast too much, but right now I'm watching the Olympics. And when you watch these top performers, when they have an exceptional performance, their emotion, you're seeing that emotion come out. And it's my view, I haven't studied this part systematically, but it's my view that those optimal swims or you know volleyball spikes or vault jumps were became more automatic because the athletes recognized they succeeded and they felt this emotion that helped wire in that action to be more automatic they didn't have to think about that volleyball hit or that swim or that gymnastics vault um and i've really come to uh, I don't want to say intimidated by emotions. I've really come to admire and be a huge fan of human emotions and the roles they play in our lives, including in habit formation. Sure. And we're going to be talking about motivation. And if you go back to Latin, movere in Latin is the root word for both motivation and emotion, uh, because that's how close they are together. Um, Another comment you have in the book, you said celebration is habit fertilizer. And we're actually still talking about emotions, so I want to give you a chance to elaborate on that statement. Yeah, so celebration is the technical word we use in tiny habits to be, it's something that you do to cause a positive emotion inside yourself on demand. Uh, For some people, smiling in the mirror will cause a positive emotion on demand. Other people, most of us raising our hands over our head like victory, we just scored the big goal in the game and so on, there are at least 100 different techniques for this. And those are listed in the book, Tiny Habits. And not only can you hack 
your habit by hacking these emotions, especially what I'm focusing people on is the feeling of success. So if you can cause yourself to feel successful when you take a vitamin and drink more water and do push-ups or whatever, that's that emotion um, causes your brain to take notice of that action and make it more automatic. Now, the habit fertilizer piece has to do with uh, going back to my research years ago when I was coaching people week after week in the tiny habits method. And people would report doing more than the three habits they had signed up for within five days. The vast majority of people would have ripple effects and they'd start changing other behaviors in their life. And I started noticing the pattern that the, the feeling of success Yes, it helps wire it in the habit, but it also starts shifting people's identity the mo- in the most broadest way. And then I was then I changed the the Tiny Habits program is a five day program. The end of the week, now this has gone on for ten years. We evaluate how it's gone and we look at the data. And so I added to that weekend evaluation a question about how has your concept of self shifted? And specifically, Dan, they filled in this uh, phrase, I now see I'm the kind of person who, and they would fill in uh, the rest of the sentence. And people would write, I I now say I'm the kind of person who can change. I'm the kind of person who can follow through. I'm the kind of person who can create habits. I'm the kind of person who can actually achieve anything I want in my life and so on. So these are qualitative responses, but I have thousands of those. And taken together, it's pretty strong evidence that even within five days, people are experiencing a change in identity. And I attribute that to the feeling of success. So as you do a new behavior, let's say a tidiness behavior, and you feel successful, you start thinking of yourself, I'm the kind of person who tidies up. If it's a snacking or nutrition behavior, you might start thinking of yourself, I'm the kind of person who eats healthy snacks or who makes um, who, who eats healthy foods and so on. And so that's not a function of repetition. That's not a function of just simply writing down a goal or an objective. It's a function of people f- having this emotional experience as they do this behavior. And the thing that seems to be true for the vast majority of people is change leads to change. And I see emotion as the thing that opens people up to making these additional changes, not just the three habits they worked on in the five days, but then they step up and then on average, 18% of people within the five-day window step up and make a big change in their life. The vast majority of people make other changes, small ones, but about 18% on average report making a big change in their life even though the tiny habits program is just like about making these small things. So this, let me dig a little further into that. Cause you encouraged me, Dan, that I can geek out a little bit here. The mechanism for that, it's hard to know exactly what the mechanism that opens people to make the big changes. But after a few years, it seemed clear to me, this is what's going on. And it's very hard to show this experimentally. So let me put it out there as a hypothesis. Let's, let's take a snacking behavior. Somebody creates a new habit in the tiny habits way to eat a healthy snack at lunch. 
before they did that, they probably had some fear around changing their nutrition behavior because they probably tried before and they failed. Okay. So in my view, fear is the anticipation of a loss or the anticipation of something negative happening. But at the same time, they had hope that they could change. And so what you saw in the book, Dan, is me mapping out these competing motivators, hope and fear. Hope is lifting the motivation where fear is demotivating and they work on each other like vectors. So hope is pushing up, fear is pushing it down. So somebody looking at changing their nutrition behavior in the face of a history of failures over the years, they have significant fear. But then when they start doing tiny habits and they see they see themselves succeeding eating a healthy snack, the hypothesis is that fear that was um, demotivating them then reduces or it lifts entirely, which then allows the hope to emerge so the motivation can get stronger. The best analogy I have for this is a hot air balloon. So say you have a hot air balloon that has hot air inside the balloon that's pulling it up, but it has ballast or weight that's holding it down. And so it's at a steady state. You've got two forces. If you drop the ballast, in other words, if you get rid of the fear, then the existing hot air or the existing motivation can move the balloon up. And that is what I believe is happening. This is the hypothesis that by feeling successful and seeing that you can succeed, that can have a substantial effect on the fear that you had because you were afraid you were going to fail. And it either gets diminished or in some cases, it seems like that fear actually flips to hope. And that's what I think is happening with those 18% of people that then make a huge breakthrough. Not only did the, the fear go away, but it flipped and became an opposite force and lifted them much higher. And the higher your level of motivation, the harder the behavior you can do. I'll stop there. I hope that wasn't too deep or too abstract, but that's oh, how no, not uh, at all. It's, 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 it's wonderful stuff. I'm going to summarize a bit and then add a bit on. So, so one thing when you're talking about success, you refer to this in the book as a feeling you're calling shine, which makes me think of sunshine, which makes me think of warmth. Uh, I'm bathing in this success. And it really brings you to momentum, that kind of emotional momentum, that lift you're talking about. To me, one of the really important things about the book is you're not talking about iron will discipline you know, repetition that you're just hammering your way to changing this thing is that you're using some natural organic motivation to get you somewhere else. And I think that's really wonderful because I know from other studies that people who feel happy, uh, it tends to build. It means you get to superior solutions more quickly. Um, and it just, it provides that momentum. The other angle I want to bring in here before we move on to the process itself is Yes, it's called tiny habits. It's going from the little to the big. How does the lizard brain, because the lizard brain, if we go back, is sensory oriented, and then you get the emotional mammalian brain, and then the more rational human brain. So I can't imagine that your reference to the lizard brain early in the book is by chance. Talk to me about lizard brain and how that little to big, uh, how that little starting on the, the, uh, the really concrete is so important. Yeah. Let's see. How, how shall I parse this? 
<laughs> Sorry, I was, geeking, I was geeking out myself there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to give a really clear response to this, but let, let, let me let me parse it out this way. One way to think about it, it is really helpful to think about it from like an evolutionary perspective. Why is the feeling of success? Why is shine useful? And I live in a part. I'm going to give uh, an example, and I think this might be a helpful way to answer this. Uh, I live in a part of Northern California that has endured some fires. And let's imagine that uh, a a mom, a bobcat was displaced because of the fire. And so once the fire has passed through, she is now out hunting for food for her, her cub. I guess that's what you call a baby bobcat, a kid. I guess you call it a kid. Um, And so when she encounters food in a certain ravine, of course, there's something that happens in her brain to signify you have succeeded and it would be worthwhile to come back here again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. So it really serves a key purpose, this feeling of success. Um, and I think it's helpful for at least the Tiny Habits coaches and other people we work with to think of it in those fundamental terms. If that mama bob- bobcat or if her ancestors did not have a way to signal, oh my gosh, this ravine or this is where I find food and have that then become a more automatic behavior, then that creature didn't pass on his or her genes. And so I think it is quite deeply embedded in all of us. And I don't know how how low, I, I, don't, I don't, you know, which animals have these feelings of success and which don't and so on, but it does seem quite fundamental that we are wired to move toward things that help us succeed in ways that matter. With the mama bobcat, it's food and reproduction. In human life, it might be social approval and other things that aren't as basic as food and reproduction. And that's what you're doing with tiny habits with the technique of celebration. You're hacking into that thing that's very fundamental. And for people that have a hard time saying good for me or doing a Tiger Woods like fist pump, what we're, this isn't so much in the book, but we're talking more and more with ha- uh, people about a purpose-focused celebration. So as you drink this glass of water right here, focus on what high purpose in your life is that helping you achieve? How is drinking water helping you succeed in something that's very important. Dan, in my life, teaching and sharing about behavior and habits is really important. So I might drink this water and think, this is helping my voice so I can then fulfill my life's work of sharing how habits really work. So it's that connection between drinking water and this higher purpose that really matters to me and making that connection in that moment to help wire in the habit, to help make that behavior more automatic. Just like the mama bobcat that finds the mouse or the rat or whatever she finds in the ravine, there's something that happens there that gets her to return to that spot so she can uh, feed her young and propagate and live on. Sure. Well, first of all, I have to say for listeners, there's a palpable sense as I read this book that you enjoyed connecting and sharing, and uh, it just it comes across. Um, playing with the, the, the mama bobcat, as it were, and the lizard brain. I mean, you're really talking about things that are quite concrete. So I love it when you're talking about the little allows you to accomplish the big change. 
because your formula here, a really basic formula as we move into process, is B equals map. And that's behavior equals motivation plus ability and prompt. And the prompt is quite physical. It's quite sensory. Um, and yet that's how the whole thing comes together and allows us to get to this other place. So talk to me about the formula, if you were, and the value of that formula. Yeah. Yeah. And I refer to that as the fog behavior model. It's written out like an equation, but it's technically not like a math equation. Um, But the components are a behavior happens when three things come together at the same time, motivation, ability, and prompt. And this is for any type of behavior. So Dan, if I could draw a visual and I'm doing it right now with my arms and drawing a big circle, I would put the word behavior in the big circle. Inside of that circle, I draw a smaller circle and write the word habit. So habit is a subset of behavior. Habit is a behavior we do quite automatically without thinking. So the behavior model, motivation, ability, and a prompt applies to all behaviors. So the big circle. It also applies to habits But the emotion piece is especially important to that subset. So one, uh, some of the work I'm doing in industry right now um, for a health product is really looking at motivation, ability, prompts, and the emotion that happens. So that then gets added in this subset when we talk about habits. But for any behavior type, whether it's a one-time decision, whether it's a stopping behavior, whether it's a temporary behavior like watching the Olympics every morning like I'm doing right now, it can always be characterized by what prompted this behavior, the ability factors, how easy or hard this behavior was, and then motivation. And it really... That model was the breakthrough that came together for me in 2007. It's like a riddle that had never been solved. And once you hear the answer, like motivation, ability, prompt, it might seem really obvious, but it wasn't obvious before. And so that model then opened the door to other models and to methods like the tiny habits method and created, and that's why I say there's a system here and it's a new system and it works together because it all builds on this, I'm going to call it a discovery, that all behavior is motivation, ability, and prompt. And that applies to all behavior types, including habits. Okay. And I want to work with each of those terms because you you have some characterizations of them. You say of motivation that it's the most fickle element. You mm. say of ability, it's the most reliable element. And you say of prompts that they are black and white. You notice them or you don't. And by the way, of course, emotion also ties in very much to what we actually pay attention to and what's memorable for us. But if we could go back to each of those, fickle, reliable, black and white. Uh, <laughs> unpack, that, unpack that for us, if you would. Well done. I wish I had been that succinct in the book, Dan. That's good. But, okay, you, so, but you were actually. <laughs> <laughs> but not quite in your words. I like what you said. So motivation is what it sounds like. I have further defined it. And there are three components. Uh, one is pleasure and pain, what you feel in the moment. Another is anticipation. That's hope and fear. So hope and fear are motivators, the two sides of the same coin. And the third core motivator is a social one. It's this uh, wanting to be accepted and not wanting to be rejected. 
And but you can treat you, you don't really have to dig down into the what I define as the three core motivators. You can think of motivation in the way we talk about it every day. The surprise here, Dan, is the academic research on motivation is very, very sparse in terms of understanding how motivation changes over time. There is not a long tradition of academic research that looks at the dynamic nature of motivation. And we all know that. We all have experienced that, where our motivation goes up and down. And in fact, that fluctuation did not have, there There was no way to talk about it. There wasn't a vocabulary. Um, and then about, I'd say 10 years ago, uh, David Sobel, who was attending one of my boot camps, and other, we said, well, what should we call this? We decided to call that dynamic the motivation wave. David Sobel is a primary care physician at Kaiser Permanente, a really smart guy, um, buddy of mine. And he said, let's call it the motivation wave. So now we have a term, which I think is a great term because waves go up and down. They can be of different sizes and so on. And now... And they ebb just like the tides and they have, you know, as you yeah. mentioned, morning is bigger than the evening and so forth. Yes. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah. So that's, that's motivation. And the key there, the key insight for habits, at least, is your motivation won't always be high. It will go up and down. That's how we are. Yep. Like if the mama yep. bobcat was always, always hunting for food, if her motivation was just off the charts for hunting for food and she didn't feed her young, um, or she didn't build a shelter for her young, then that would be a bad idea. So I think we are it naturally wired for our motivation to shift from thing to thing to thing. And if we were motivated to do everything all the time, and maybe some people are, and I think their lives, that would be a very, very difficult life to have. So what Tiny Habits acknowledges is that our motivation is going to shift. It's going to go up and down. And so then you look at, ability. And if you make something really, really easy to do, a new habit, like pour a glass of water or floss one tooth or do two push-ups, your motivation can be low and you can still do it. So what you're doing with tiny habits is you're making the new habit, you're setting the bar so low that even when your motivation is weak, you can still do that behavior. So you're not relying on the fantasy of having high levels of motivation. So that's one of the hacks in tiny habits, make it so tiny that even when you're tired or you're distracted or you're sick, you can still do the habit. So a bit, and there's five components to ability. I won't get into that right now. Yeah, the but basically third, low, even at low ebb, you can still float the boat. Is what you're aiming for. There we go. Yeah. I love that. Yes. Well, thank you, Dan. I should have had you give me little sound bites. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like that. Yes. And then it comes to prompts. The prompt is the thing that says, do this behavior now. And the hack in tiny habits is to use a routine you already do to be the prompt or the reminder for the new habit. So you don't have a post-it note, you don't just rely on memory, you look at your own daily routine. And this is part of the design process. You say, well, where does this habit fit naturally? What does it come after? For example, when I'm in Maui, um, as soon as I'm done, I surf every morning really early. And as soon as I pack up and I drive back home, as soon as I pull under the road, that then is my prompt to call my mom on the phone. So I just 
you know, I've tried other places, but that works really well. So after I pull onto the road and I'm driving safely, I dial my mom or my dad and I have the chat and that fits really well in my life right there. So you're hacking the prompt as well by using an existing routine to be a reminder for the habit that you want. So tiny habits is hacking all of those. One, acknowledging motivation is not always going to be high. So then you make it super tiny. You increase your ability by making it easy. And then you make sure there's a prompt, not by plastering post-it notes or setting alarms, but by finding where does this fit naturally in your life? What does it come after? And so that's, so the tiny habits method was directly derived from my own behavior model. I was looking at my own behavior model and said, okay, motivation is unreliable. We can control ability. Oh, and the prompt, there's a clever way to do the prompt. Wow. And I've given a TED talk just on that topic. Sure. Well, one of the things I like there is that it's the, you know, you're working it, embedding it in the routines of your lives already rather than superimposing it. Uh, I'm so often struck. We, we, my company often has tested products for companies or new concepts, ideas, services. And of course, you know, the usual thing is about one out of 10 of these succeed uh, because they're just being mm-hmm. superimposed like this alien spacecraft that's supposed to drop into people's lives and suddenly be incorporated. And it's just, not terribly likely it's going to happen that way. Before we run out of time, I want to get to one other angle in the book, and that is group change. And you mentioned also in specific regarding group change, four groups, dolphins, turtles, crabs, and clams uh, as a terminology you use. So if you can take us through those before we close. Yeah, there's a way, uh, there's a visual in the book. So there's a two-dimensional, there's an XY graphic uh, for the behavior model. Uh, hard to describe yep. in audio, but your customers or your family members or your employees who are both motivated and have the ability to do a specific behavior up in the upper right-hand quadrant, I call those dolphins. And you always go to the dolphins first. For any new product or service or program, you always roll out to the most motivated, capable people. And I call those dolphins. If you go to the upper left-hand corner, that's motivations high, but it's hard to do. They don't have the ability. And I call those the turtles. And Dan, I chose these names very deliberately. I wanted nature names. And of course, dolphins are very capable and motivated. Turtles might be motivated, but they're less mobile. So I picked that as they want to, but it's hard to do. So for that market segment or for that type of person, the key there is to make it easier to do. And then on the bottom of the landscape, in the bottom right-hand side, you have the segment that has the, they're called crabs. They have the ability to do the behavior. They have the ability to do the behavior, but they don't want to. I name those crabs. You do not go after those people. They don't want to do what you're offering. And then the lower left-hand corner, you have the clams. They are lacking motivation and they are lacking ability. And the important, there's a lot of ways you can use that model, but for, I work with a lot of people who create products. And one of the important takeaways from that is, oh my gosh, we are designing for the dolphins. We're not designing for crabs. We're not designing for clams. They don't want to do what we're offering. We primarily go for the dolphins and then we make it easier for the turtles and boom. Those are our customers, or those are the people we are going to help with this 
either specific behavior or the specific product. Okay, fair enough. Now, I could mention that you've left out the bobcat, but we won't go there. Instead, <laughs> we have used up our time, and I want to thank you so much for being my delightful guest. This is Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode number 65, The Truth About Habits. My guest, BJ Fogg, he is the author of Tiny Habits, The Small Changes That Change Everything. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can check out other episodes by visiting my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com, or you can go to the New Books Network and plug in the name of my show. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, it's from Benjamin Franklin. He said, quote unquote, your net worth to the world is usually determined by what remains after your bad habits are subtracted from your good ones. Until next time, be kind and stay safe.